Father, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness and your grace and your mercies that are new every morning. We thank you, Lord, that you have revealed yourself in your word and that we can, we can know you as we know and study your word. We thank you that you've given us minds to understand what is there and at the same time, Lord, to recognize and be humbled that we don't understand it all because we are not you. We are finite and you're infinite. We are limited in our, our, not only just our knowledge, but our, the ways that our logic and wisdom works, but you are infinite in yours. And so, Father, we pray that you'd help us to be edified as we seek to in, in grow in our knowledge, but also continue to be humbled as we recognize that we are not God, that you are. So, Father, we pray that you teach us these things. Help us to understand, uh, Lord, how we would differ with other believers and where the, the, the real differences lie in, in, in understanding your scriptures, that we would be able to interact with them with charity. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we've been talking about eschatology, the doctrine of the last things. We've covered personal eschatology. That's our own personal futures, individuals, where Christians pretty much agree, right? We all die, and when we die, that if, if you if trust in Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, you go to be absent with the bodies, to be home with the Lord. You go to be with the Lord. So there's not a, a lot of disagreement as far amongst Christians on that subject. Also, we talked about general eschatology, the fate of the entire universe, there's more that we agree upon with fellow Christians than we disagree upon. We like to focus on what we disagree upon, but the important things are what we agree upon, that Christ is returning, that there is a definite return that's personal and bodily. There's some indefinite aspects to his return in the sense that the timing is some, one that no one knows and that there's an attitude that we should have about his return, that we should have an expectation of his return that drives us to holiness and drives us to perseverance. Those are agreements. Those are what scripture teaches, that no matter what our eschatological position regarding the millennium and the rapture and other things we're going to talk about, that those are are things that we agree upon as Christians. There's more that we agree upon than we disagree upon. But there are things that we disagree upon, particularly... One chapter in scripture. Turn to Revelation chapter 20. (laughs) Revelation chapter 20. I'm going to read the whole chapter um, to give us some context as that this week and next week and the following week, we're going to be diving into this on three different views that that Christians have about the millennium. And so let's just see what the the word of God says. So let's start with uh, chapter, let's just read chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. 
Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Uh, I think I'll actually I'll stop there. That, that, that gets the most of the context there. So this is a chapter on the millennium. And there are three views historically in the Christian church on this idea of the millennium. This is where the, the Christians, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, would disagree on the interpretation of this chapter. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the three positions this week and next week and the week after. <clears throat> and, and here's my goal in this. Um, I mean, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna be impartial to the sense of where I, I have a position, and our church has a position. And in, in, in my mind, I think I think it's fairly clear for me. But I, I think it's it's right to try to understand others' positions, not just what I would caricature other people's positions as. Of oh, that's so dumb that they would believe that. But these aren't dumb people, right? These are people, brothers and sisters in Christ, who maybe some people just you know saw some video on YouTube. All right, or heard some pastor say something and they believe it. But there's a lot of people who think as deeply as you and I do about the scriptures and they would hold a different interpretation. And we should ask why, right? We shouldn't just ask, oh, they're dumb. Oh, they just, they're, they're, they don't believe in the, the inerrancy of scripture because they're saying the millennium isn't actually a thousand years. We would never want someone to treat us that way. And they do, right? They would, they would treat our position of a premillennialism that way too, Right? But we, we wouldn't want to be treated that way. We don't want to treat them that way. We would, we would want to say, we want someone to say, what is it that you believe about the scriptures? Why do you believe that? And let's talk about why we would disagree on that interpretation of the scriptures, right? And so that's what I want to do this week and next week. And, and as we look at the, the, the positions that, that I would disagree with, our church would disagree with as far as um, amillennialism and postmillennialism. Um, and, then, and then we'll look at premillennialism. But let's look at amillennialism. Amillennialism. That's a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> it's called amillennialism. Ah, in Greek, that the a to start a word, alpha, the, I'll just say it, the a to start a word equals no. Right? So some amillennialists don't even like the term amillennialism because they actually say, say, well, we don't believe there's no millennialism, no millennium. We just believe. The, the millennium is already realized, they would say. They would say it's a realized millennium or an idealized millennium. They would say that the millennium is classified as amillennialism. Ah, I'm going to struggle with that this morning. It's a fact of no millennium because in the fact that they don't believe in a, a thousand years that is still to come. They would say that the millennium is something that has, is being realized in the church already. Let me give you a graphic. So if we have timeline of history. I forgot my pins this morning, so I'll have to do with this one. So if we have the Old Testament here, right? And then we have, um, we have Christ coming here, right? In, 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 uh, in, in the New Testament. And then Christ, Christ um, ascends of Acts 1, and then we have the church age, right? And then at the end, and then let's say that then, we'll just put for now, we'll put the eternal state, right? Heaven and hell, right? New heavens, new earth. What the amillennialists would say is that 
the millennium is the church, is being realized in the church age, right? To compare, what we would say in, in our church is that there is a time at the end of the church age where there is this, there's the tribulation and the, uh, and the millennium that's at the end of the church age before the eternal state, right? That's what we would hold in our church. But the all-millennial position would say, no, 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 no. They would say that the tribulation and the millennium are both describing the church age right now. And, and we're going we're gonna to look at why they say this. It's not that they're, again, they're not dumb. They're, they're, there's real reasons why they would interpret it this way. But that's, that's, the, that's the explanation of their view. Yes? Did they even use the word church age? I don't think they would use that, would they? Wouldn't they just say now? They would say now. I don't know if they would say church age or not. That's a good question. They, I could, maybe during the time of the church, the, the, the time that we're living on as the church? I don't know. Yeah, cause there's, because, because a lot more are, are covenant theologians. I don't know. Yeah, but, but they would say that now, the time from, from Pentecost to, to the eternal state is the time that the church is, that God is, is, is working through his church, the, God, the, the time right now, is a time where we're experiencing both the tribulation and the millennium in the experiences of our lives. Now, let's back, take a step back real quick before we analyze some of the things. Theologically, theologically, we could say, are there truths to that? Are there theological truths that we would say there are aspects of the tribulation in the sense of persecution, as in the sense of false Christs, as in the sense of false teachings? Is that true that we are experiencing that today? Yes. yes. Are we experiencing the growth of the Great Commission? Are we experiencing the reign of God through the church? Are we seeing God take captive or, or re- return captives and redeem people from the bondage of Satan today? Yes. yes. So theologically, this is not a, a, an, an unorthodox position. This holds to the theological truths of what we would say today. But, and, and if we look historically... Now, there's mixed evidence in the early church. There were premillennial uh, church fathers like Irenaeus, um, but there are other church fathers who would hold to this position. So they're both very old positions going back to the early days of the church. Um, but if you look, the, and, and we would, our church would be clarified as a reformed in doctrine and, and believing in the doctrines of grace and, and God's sovereignty and, and salvation in these ways. If you look at the history of Reformed theology, the vast majority of Reformed theologians were either amillennials or, or postmillennials. Premillennials are very, very rare in, in Reformed theology. And they're sort of modern as well, aren't they? Isn't that sort of a more modern, less time frame? Um, as far as Reformed theologians yeah, believing it? Yeah. yeah, but as far as premillennials, you could, you could tra- trace that all the way back to Irenaeus. So. I are, uh, I might be pronouncing it. I might, again, my church history is not great. I R E N A E U S. Yeah. So, so, so he, he held, he held what would be called a premillennial view. We could look at back, back of a literal, a literal future thousand years. Um, and him and Origen even went back and forth on that. Um, if I remember correctly, my church history, which I'm not great on. So don't take my word too closely for that. But if you look at the history of the Reformed theology, premillennialism is, is, is the minority. 
Very, very few people in church history have believed both in the doctrines of grace and a premillennial eschatology. So we need to, again, we need to be humble in this and realize that, that, that um, there are a lot of, you know, people that we disagree with in the sense of, um, I think, it, did I write some down? Calvin, Machen, uh, now today's uh, guys like Sinclair Ferguson, um, most Presbyterian uh, um, believers would, would, you know, uh, Orthodox Presbyterians would, would hold some sort of theology like this. And so, um, especially after World War I, which um, we're going to see in the video next week, after World War I, most of the post-millennialism said, this theology just doesn't work anymore. This idea that the world's going to keep getting better and better and better and better and better, and we're going to bring in the kingdom and make it all right. Most post-millennial theologians turned out being amillennial theologians. And so, um, so just, just, just a historical background on there. So now, why, why biblically... Why, you could say exegetically, why from the scriptures would our brothers and sisters in Christ hold this position? Again, we want to actually know what their arguments are. Not, not just, and I've heard before a sense of saying, ah, oh, they, just, they just like misreading scripture. Come on, you always take numbers in scripture literally. Millennium always means a thousand years. Is that true? It's a day. Huh? True. Also, what about, what about us who, who love, in, uh, especially in a premillennial position, Daniel 9? Daniel 9, how about our sevens of sevens, right? You always take them literally. You never take them figuratively. Well, that's apocalyptic literature. Well, what's Revelation? Apocalyptic literature, right? So, again, I think there's problems with this position, but let's actually find what the real problems are and not just what we'd make up and, and just to knock them down, right? So what are the issues? Let's, let's understand what their logic is. Here is their logic. Their logic is this. Their logic is the way they read Revelation. The way that uh, amillennialists will read Revelation is they read Revelation as a circular document. As, as Revelation describes, it depends on which, which, who, who you read, Greg Beale who I think has the best presentation of this in his commentary, Greg Beale would write that there are seven destructions of the earth in Revelation. That Revelation is a, is a, is a description of a circular description of from the beginning to the end, seven different times, looking at the same event in seven different ways. That's how, that's how Greg Beale and, and the amillennialist position will... Now, not all, not all amillennialists would say seven, but that's the idea, is that Revelation is read in a circular way that starts from beginning to the end, describing this, this, work, this, this work of God, and then starts over again. So they would say similar to 1 John. Right? So what's, the only, what's one of the only other documents we have by, by the, the writer of Revelation? Well, it's, it's, we have the Gospel of John and the epistles of John, right? So they would say in 1 John, if you ever read 1 John, it's very circular, right? John is describing the same themes. He'll cover those themes and he'll start back over it again. Problem, here's the problem. If you, if you deny, if you deny that, that, that you're, um, if you don't repent of your sin, if you don't love your brother, if you don't believe that Jesus is God. By the way, let's, let's go over that again. Here's, you know, that, that the problem is that if you, you uh, don't repent of your sin, don't love your brother, don't believe Jesus is God. By the way, let's go over it again. If you don't believe, and he goes over and over and over again. And so the Amelianists would say that's what John is doing in Revelation. So look at Revelation real quick. Um, 
So after the letters, that we'd see that the, the beginning of the revelation there, of, of John's revelation, um, oh, I'm in Romans. Not, Romans wouldn't help us in Revelation now, would it? I guess, huh? It does start with an R. That's probably why I, I turned there. Um, all right. So, so as you see, as you finish the uh, first few chapters, as far as the, um, uh, the letters to the churches, and you, and you see John's revelation and the scroll and the lamb, and then you start seeing this first judgment, this first set of judgment, which is what? Starting in verse six or chapter six, you even have a title probably there on your Bibles to help you out. The seven seals. And the omelets would say seven used throughout scripture indicates what? Completion, perfection. The perfection of God's judgment. That God perfects his judgment in seven judgments of seals. Ending in, well, actually it ends in in chapter eight, but before chapter eight, there's this this interlude about the 144,000 before. So really you see the end of the sixth seal in chapter six, verses uh, 12 to 17. Let me read that for you. In the seventh seal, you just get silence. So chapter six, verses 12 through 17, you say, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the Amelianus would say, when you see this vision of earthquake, this description of earthquake in Revelation, it's always complete destruction. It is the destruction of the earth. This is, this is the end. There was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth and the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gate. Saying, listen, are we going to take this literally or not? If this is only halfway through the revelation and the stars fell and crashed on the earth? Yeah. So they would say premillennials don't take this literally enough. Right? The sky vanished like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place and the kings of the earth and the great ones and generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, the slave and the free, hid themselves in the caves among the rocks and the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide from us from the face of him who's seated at the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For who can, for the great day of their, of their wrath has come and who can stand? Here's God's final judgment. God's final judgment has come. Then you have this interlude, talking about the 144,000 uh, and, and God's people. And then you end with chapter 8, verse 1. After that final destruction, you have the seventh seal, and it's just silence as, as God's judgment has ended. So that's what they would say. Now, you're going to say, what, does Craig really start? I, this, I don't hold this position. I'm going to show you why some, some, there's some issues here. But this is not an incomprehensible position. You look at that description, it's like, yeah, that seems like the end, Right? That seems like, man, that's, that, that's, that's the end. That, that's the day of God's judgment. Well, then you have this whole new set of judgments. It's almost like they would say God's starting the picture over again from the beginning of his picture of his judgments. So you have the seven trumpet judgments in Revelation 8 through 11. And look how the seventh trumpet, uh, trumpet judgment ends. Chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. <clears throat> Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Time of the world ended. It's done. The time the kingdom of Christ has started. They'd say, if you take this literally, I don't think they'd say, use the word literally, but, but see, there's all this discussion of how literal do you take revelation? And it always depends on which, which one fits your position the best, usually. 
right? We're all, it's all a hermeneutic of trying to figure out how, how to interpret these things. They're saying, listen, it seems like the, this, the kingdom of Christ has begun. And then, and, and then uh, uh, as people worshiping the Lord, um, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who was. You have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations rage, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both great and small, for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Time, it's time for the reward. It's time for the eternal state. That's what they would interpret this to say. Uh, then God's temple in heaven was open and the Ark of the Covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumbles, pearls of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. Again, that, that picture of, of, of final, final eschatology there. Then you have what everyone holds as a figurative picture, whether, whatever position, this picture of the woman and the serpent in Revelation verses chapters 12 through 14 and is this retelling of the story, Right? And, and, and you look at how that story, retelling of the story of, 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 the, of God and, and Israel and the Christ, and, and you look at, at chapter 14, verses 14 through 20, how that story ends. And you see, uh, then I looked and behold, a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like the son of man with a golden crown in his head, on his head, in his head, on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Another angel came out from the altar, the angel who had the authority over, uh, over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. It's ripe, it's time. The time it's time to bring the final judgment. To the earth, so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of, of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city. The blood flowed from the winepress as high as the horse's bridle for 1,600 1, stadia. Seems like the end, right? If that's this, this picture of, of, of this, this, this final uh, uh, this destruction and judgment, right? It's actually a picture taken right out of Joel 3 in the picture of the day of the Lord. Then you start over again, they would say. Now it's almost like you're rewinding and that judgment's finished, but you're doing another one and you have the seven bowls, another picture of completion, another complete judgment. Seven bowls of chapter 15 and chapter 16. And look how the seven bowls end in chapter 16, verses 17 through 21. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumbles, pearls of thunder, and a great earthquake. Sound familiar? That's similar to the finish of the, the judgments of the, uh, of the trumpets. Um, Such has never been since there was on earth, so great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found, and, the, and great hailstones, and 100... Uh, about 100 pounds each, each fell from the heaven on people and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. So again, you have the, the, like the finishing of, of the judgments. Then in Revelation chapter 17 through 19, you have, it just said Babylon was, was um, 
God, remember, Babylon and drained, already drained her cup, cup of wrath on Babylon in, in chapter 17. But then you see the, the, the fall of Babylon again in chapters uh, 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 18, 18, so, so uh, where, am, where am I? Uh, eight, 18 and 19, right? All the way up through 18. And then, then, then the, the return of Christ in chapter 19. Um, and, and, then, and then you have the millennium in, in chapter 20. So this isn't a dumb way to read Revelation. There, there are, can you see, even if you don't hold the position, I, again, I don't hold the position, but do you see why our amillennialist brothers and sisters would read this and, and say, there is, is, it's not a, a completely out of line understanding. We know that John does sometimes write in circular fashion, and there does seem to be hints that he could be writing in this sort of circular fashion. And if so, it is, it, if he's writing to, to us to understand that, 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 that there is going to be persecution of the type tribulation and God's working type of millennium today in church. That, do you see how they could come to that sort of conclusion? Yeah. Yeah, Dave? Okay. So he told it three times. Yeah. So. Yeah. Told it three times. Yeah. So. Yeah. Told it seven times. Yeah. So. Yeah. Does that make it like it's completely ongoing? Yeah, it's more of the. Necessarily in my mind. Yeah, it's more of how would you the the, the idea is how do you interpret Revelation twenty, and they would say that if you start to see this repetition in Revelation, then Revelation twenty. Is one more of those repetitions? And that's fine. Yeah. But just like John repeated himself in First John. Yeah. So yeah. Only yeah. Again. Yeah. So and, I'll pay attention. And only so, again, so I'll pay attention. Yeah. That doesn't make me think that uh, I'm necessarily going to interpret these things as ongoing. Yes. Uh, I mean, uh, the first. Uh, some people will say the first. Uh, the, the, oh, I see. You're, you're saying the point that, that just because he's saying it multiple times does not mean it's necessarily describing. Um, describing the age of Christ's return, or tr- from Christ's ascension to his return. Yeah, it, yeah, it's not, yeah, it's not meaning that we are ongoing through the millennial and uh, the church age and all this all together. And, um, yeah, yeah, I would say, and, and I, because I'm not an amillennialist guy, so I, I, I want to be careful here, but I'm pretty sure what they would say, I think, from, from what I've read, is that Revelation is written to real people in a real situation. And you see that by the, the, the letters to the church that f- that's phrased at the beginning. So it's written to the church. This revelation was to the church. And in understanding that all this, this all is being described, that ultimately it ends, they would say, when destruction ends, you see destruction. And then in some of these, these repetitions, you see the return of Christ. So you see that it's, it's couched in this aspect of it ends the return of Christ. And it's written to the churches I believe that's how they would explain it. Again, they probably are more nuanced than my explanation there, but I think that's how they would explain that. So it's to, ch- to the churches, to the churches that ends, churches that, that would uh, up until the day of Christ's return. And so, again, I, I, I probably am not as, uh, as, as articulate as they would be on that point. And yeah, so. Uh, just, you know, there's, uh, and some people read the, the, seven, the, churches, the seven churches is uh, describing different ages mm-hmm. throughout. Yeah, I think the problem there is is that you're looking at one. We don't do that anywhere else in Scripture of of of, of allegorizing 
Well, he wrote to the Church of Galatia, but let's say that the Church of Galatia is a metaphor for something else. And t- for a certain age. Yeah, and two, what you're really looking at is, is you're looking beyond authorial intent there, is that, that could, John, could, could, could John have been writing about something he had knew nothing about? Yeah, in a way, but even those other images, you're looking, how does John describe the rest of Revelation? He's pulling out of what he knows. He's pulling out of the Old Testament. He's pulling especially out of Exodus. He's pulling out of the Old Testament. He is understanding what's going on. It's not that God is just telling him these things and he's writing it down. It's like, I don't know. Like he, this is, this is, he's pulling from, that he is understanding in some ways what is going on. And this idea of that John is going to know the, um, the dark ages and the reformation and some of these things, that's just, that, that's just a hermeneutic that just wouldn't make sense. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, but I guess, in, again, my point is not, I'm not trying to convince you. And it's, I hope I haven't convinced you. Um, but my point is, say, there, there's, there's rational arguments here yeah. to say, it, could Revelation 20 be interpreted in the context of the rest of Revelation like this? It could. The question is, does Revelation 20 show that evidence? That's my question. And here's, I think, where the amillennialist view falls apart. Does the evidence in Revelation 20 give evidence that, 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 it, that John's intending for that to be the case? And I just don't, it just breaks apart. The, the, there and with the rest of scripture. Here's, here's a couple things. Um, first of all, I'm going to use actually one of their criticisms, one of the amillennialist criticisms against them. One of the amillennialist criticisms, criticisms of, of us as premillennialists is actually one of those caricatures I talked about last week. We said that when we look at this aspect of the return of Christ, right? Whether, however, you organize the the, the rapture, the tribulation, the um, uh, uh, the millennium, the return of Christ, all those things that the biblical authors were looking at this as a whole and not as its parts. So when it's talking about the parousia, the coming, the day of the Lord, all of this was looked at as a whole. So to try to argue that someone is not explaining the parts because the biblical authors are trying to give you some sort of order back in here, all views would have to say this is, this is held as a whole, right? And so, the, some, the, so here's the omelette criticism of us. They would say, listen, in 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about that when, um, when Christ returns for his church, death's gone, death's defeated. As soon as Christ returns for his, Christ, as soon as Christ returns, there is no more death. The time of death is over. So there can't be a there can't be a literal millennium if when Christ returns, death is over. But again, it comes back to that issue of that, that if this is viewed as a whole, Paul was not viewing this in, in, in its particular parts, but viewing this as a whole. That that really comes apart. And in fact, if you want to push this aspect of of of, of death and, and the resurrection, some of the things, I think that the the Amelian's position has much more much greater weakness. Look at Revelation chapter twenty. Look at verses four and five. And look at particularly what this says about the resurrection. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those who had the authority to judge. Uh, to judge was committed. And also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, for the word of God, and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not uh, received the mark of the foreheads of his hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead 
did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. So there's a first resurrection and a second resurrection. You see that? There's two resurrections. To interpret this, not first of saying, well, here's my structure of Revelation, so I'm going to make Revelation 20 fit my interpretation. What does Revelation 20 actually say first? It says first that there's two resurrections. There's a resurrection of God's people, particularly those in the, in the end age that are going to come and reign with God. And then there's a second revela- resurrection of all those who uh, uh, um, are, are, are going to be damned to hell. Amillennials don't, can't, can't explain two rev- resurrections in their view. They, there, there isn't. In fact, the only thing they could say is that, well, he's talking about some sort of spiritual resurrection in the first one, and then there's a, a physical resurrection in the second resurrection. But John is very emphatic. There's a first resurrection when they're raised to life. There's a second resurrection when they're raised to life. Same verb, same context, same idea. John is clear in Revelation that there are two resurrections from the dead. Uh, da, 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 da. So the rest, of, the rest of the dead, so th- those who are um, going to come reign with Christ and they have the rest of the dead did not come to life. And then you have to, to, to look over in um, uh, da, 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 cha- uh, verse 11 as it goes forward um, and, and you start seeing this picture of the, 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 the rest, the, the, the judgment at the end. And so that, that's come. So, so how do we know they're unbelievers for the rest of the dead? Is that what you just explained? Yeah, yeah. And that's what, um, and so... Um, so you have those that are coming to raise to reign with Christ, and then after the rebellion, um, then you have um, so then you have this, so you have this picture of so those who 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 are, are resurrected to reign with Christ, and then you're saying okay, so here's this now now who's left, and then you see uh, um, that there's a second resurrection that are come uh, there in verse eleven and following in in this picture there. Um, the sea gave up its dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in it, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name is not found and written in the book of life, they were thrown into the lake of fire. And so. Verse 6 kind of explains it a little bit as well. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Mm-hmm. It doesn't say there mm-hmm. that the people who are in the second resurrection are damned to hell, mm-hmm. but it does help to clarify a little bit. Mm-hmm. Okay, the first people... First resurrection, these people are the ones who are blessed and holy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in particular for the Amillennialist position, the, the difficulty is that they can't explain to you resurrections. I'm still, I'm still, yeah. I'm still blanking on the second resurrection. Does it say the word second resurrection? It just says judgment and death. So it's, well, there, there is. There, there, are, there, are two, there are two comes to life. So there, verse 4. There's they, they came to life and reigned for, with Christ for a thousand years. So here's this first description of they came to life. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So there are two different resurrections, that, 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 word, that, that, that verb come to life. There are two different comings to life. And, and, and so, and, 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 and how that works, and honestly, I just didn't spend as much time there, um, but for the position here, particularly saying that the Amelian's position can't explain it because it only can only explain one coming to life, one resurrection. And so... Um, so why is that? I mean, why does their position not allow for... 
because of how they've structured it theologically. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to structure the book and trying to structure these ideas and so that there would be only, and, and, and their idea is that there's only one, one time of a final bodily resurrection. There's one singular event. And, 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 and all of the, the ambulance would even hold that. They would say that the only way to explain this, and I, I haven't read with, I, can't, I don't think it was Beale, someone else. The only way to explain it is if John's talking about spiritual resurrection as the first coming to life and a bodily resurrection as the second coming to life. If you do that, the problem is you're, you're, you're reading that into the text because John is talking about two similar contexts there. Yeah. 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 Because I would almost say, well, fine. Let's say I'll take their position fully. Yeah. Other than the fact that I'm going to say at the end there's yeah. resurrection. So, but again, I'm just saying there's issues of can their position actually explain what's in Revelation 20? And that's why I'm saying that this is where it breaks down. They have a really articulate view of Revelation, but when you actually look at Revelation 20, which is what's important, their view breaks down. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't explain what's in the text. Not only there, but look at Revelation chapter 20, verses 2 and 3. This, this is, I think, for me, is the big one. Here's what they would say is true right now. That he, God, sees the dragon, that is the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and he threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, very clear imagery, so that he may not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. The Amalek's position is that Satan is, 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 is removed of all of his power today. Has to be. Today, if this is the millennium, if this, I, I, I'm just presenting the position. If this is the millennium, this is, my, this is one of my big issues with understanding the text. If this is the millennium, then Satan is bound. Then Satan is bound. And, and even, what do you mean by bound? That Satan is unable to deceive the nations. Well, that would be the explanation. Is that that? I don't have a problem. And and here's and so the 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 the, the rebuttal that the, the omelets would have is that even just due to the world and the flesh that, that that's ex- explaining. My issue is that when you look at First Peter five, where Peter warns that you have a, 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 an adversary that the devil pouring around like a roaring lion, that doesn't seem to fit there. Right? When you look at uh, Ephesians six, right, talking about the spiritual warfare. When you look at Colossians four, that. The, the scriptures seem to indicate the devil is free and active in this present world, yeah. right? Yes. So what would be the incentive to believe in this position? I mean, why would, why yeah. motivated to... Yeah, um, I, I, you look at two things. One, if you think that's what scripture teaches, if, if you think that's the best, if that is the best reading of Revelation, then, then, yeah. then you want to go, then that's what scripture teaches, right? So I think there's one, is that, that, that there are some who are convinced that that is the best way to explain Revelation as a whole. Um, I, I think secondly, if you're looking at this aspect of motivation, that, that there is an aspect of Revelation that is explanatory for the Christian life, right? That idea of, that, that there is both aspects of this life of, of tribulation and suffering and of Christ's working, right? That it's very descriptive of that. Um, Again, I think that theologically we would agree with them there, right? That there are aspects of that that are true for both. But again, the problem is is it just doesn't break down when it comes to that picture of Revelation 20. Yeah, I think the other thing I've heard is that the the problematic the other views too. So it's kind of 
issues yeah. If you look at, I can't remember if it's Origen or someone in the one of the early church fathers said that. It's not that they they preferred amillennialism. It's just that they couldn't agree with the other views. So there's also that as well. Yeah. Um, now here's and one final issue that I have with amillennialism is that the Old Testament seems to speak of a time after the return of Christ and yet before the eternal state, a time when the Messiah is reigning and yet when death is still occurring. I don't have times to tell you uh, to, to go over all these if you want to write them down. Isaiah 11, 6 through 11, and Psalm 72, 8 through 14, describes the Messiah's rule and still has these, at least it seems like there's the, still the possibility of death. Jesus is ruling, everything has been perfected, and yet there still seems to be death. And so it's not quite the eternal state. There seems to be some time before that. So, so those are the issues, those three issues, the, the two resurrections, the binding of Satan, and, and, and the fulfillment of how the Old Testament is picturing um, some of the eschatology. I would say those are issues that I would have with the amillennialist view. I think that it's not a dumb view. It's not an incoherent view. It's not something that, that is some people have, have accused. They're not denying the inerrancy of Scripture. They are people who take Scripture very seriously. But I'd say I, I think that, that where they have a really beautiful picture of Revelation, it breaks down that it can't explain. It doesn't explain what's actually in the text in, in Revelation chapter 20. I think there's other issues when you look at how they look through Revelation as well. But I think that particularly in this area, the, the millennium, that what you need to start with first, what Elias and I have been talking in our, 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 our class on Wednesday nights, is that, that you want to first look at what the text actually says, and then you look at the immediate context, and then you start looking at the broader context. But if they say, here's our context for Revelation as a whole, and we're going to read that into uh, Revelation 20, I, I think that's the wrong way of going around it. So I, I, those are the issues I'd have with it. Um, but I think that, the, that otherwise, I think that there's uh, some really wonderful brothers and sisters in Christ who could disagree with us on that. But let's disagree on what the real disagreements are, right? Instead of just caricaturizing that, that they don't believe in the narrative of Scripture because they call millennium um, a, a long time and it does, it, it always, numbers always mean exactly what they mean in Scripture. That, that's just not a, that's not a good criticism. There's much better ways to criticize and to, to engage on, on that topic. So, final questions? Yeah. I've noticed in there that there are certain paragraphs where uh, um, John actually, I saw. Mm -hmm. So that is the first, that's a true witness at mm -hmm. that point. Then there's other parts in here that are kind of like commentaries. Mm -hmm. So uh, what's your view on that? Yeah, I, I just don't, I probably wouldn't have much to say at this point. I mean, I, I think that in the sense of, of looking at revelation versus linear versus circular, is that what you're saying? Yeah. I, I would say that I, I would take revelation to be more linear. I mean, that's just my position. I think that's the best explanation. I, I think that you're looking at this continuing unfolding of judgment and the aspects of that God's judgment would be unfolding in, in greater and greater ways where it seems like the end and yet there's a greater end to come. I think you see that even in the Old Testament, right? In the destruction of Jerusalem and others. I, I think that it's not beyond the scope of it. Um, and so that, that would be my position. But I would say that I, under, I can understand why they see what they see there. I disagree with it. I, I, I think it's not the best reading, but I, I can see why they see it. Yeah, and so, yeah. I agree yeah. Where does their eternal state begin? Yeah, they would still say there's a return of Christ at the end. Oh, there's a return of Christ at the end. 
that brings immediately into the eternal state. And there's some, like, uh, I can't remember his name. There's a, there's a theologian, Vern Poly, some, Polythus? Poly, Poythus? Uh, he's, a, he's a professor at Westminster. He would even incorporate the rapture into that aspect there, in this, this final return there. And so I, I think not all millennialists, I'm not sure all their views on the rapture, but they would say that there's this pretty much it, all that ends into an immediate um, return, which goes immediately into the eternal state. And so immediate into judgment to the eternal state. And so, so some of the specifics, like when it says, you know, those who were uh, war brain with Christ, those who were beheaded, you know, et cetera, uh, refused to mark the beast, didn't worship the beast. Yeah. Uh, where would the all millennials place those people? They would like right now. Yeah, they would say that now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. They would say that those who were... Or, and, and on that particular passage, I'd have to look at maybe like Greg Beale's commentary and how he particularly interprets that passage. My guess is a lot of those are in the aspect of those who persevere, those who are persevering in the midst of, of the tribulation they're experiencing. Um, that, that, that's, those are those who are reigning. I, again, on that particular, that particular verse and how, I mean, you probably have to look at, um, at, 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 at like someone like Greg Beale's commentary on that. And so... Uh, if you want, if you were wanting a, someone like, I want to understand that position, I just, you know, the, the, and how they would think of something. I, I, Greg Beal is probably the best best one for that. Yeah. There's a little book by a guy who holds our position, but he explains everything really well. It's by Matthew Waymeyer. You read mm-hmm. him. Uh, it's it's called Revelation 20 and the Millennial <coughs> Debate. Revelation 20 and the Millennial Debate. His name is Matthew Waymeyer. It's just a little thin mm-hmm. book that just aims at Revelation 20. And talks about the different positions. Mm. Uh, it, it's been really helpful to me. So, so that's uh We're going to look at post-millennialism next week, and then uh, we'll look at premillennialism, the, the view of our us and the church. And there's some actually differences with that and that as well. So we'll look at that when we get there. Um, let me pray for us, Father. We thank you, and, and we thank you, Lord, for your word again, and we thank you for how it, it, it challenges us and how it humbles us, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that in light of that, that we would. Take away what you would desire for us to take away, and that is to, to be in expectation of your return and in light of that to live lives of holiness and live lives of perseverance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.